So good, so good. Before we were starting tonight, um, we, we just met actually right before we started our session, but we were talking about how to end the evening, and I said, do, do you, can you do something faithy and anthemy? And I had, I had this song in my mind, I just didn't know the name of it, and then you broke it out. That's, that's really awesome. Listen, you, you, you are beautiful people. Um, I've been in a lot of pastor settings that are a lot more guarded and awkward than the feel in the room. And I think the way Jason, I think the way they started the session tonight and the way you all just engaged really set a tone that's just so special and vulnerable and, and, and really awesome. And um, my name's Chris Jackson, and I guess I'll start by introducing Brian. Come over closer to me. Um, do any of you know Brian Holland? Have any of you met Brian before? Two things. Bri- <laughs> I'm really well known. That's good. That's so great. <laughs> Brian has um, spoken at Hume lots and lots of times in different settings, and it is really fun to be up here with him. Um, I've never been here before. This is my first time at Hume, and so he invited me to join him. Um, if you have not heard from Brian, you are going to love him. He absolutely radiates a love for Jesus. And um, he was part of a big church for many years in our area. And then he and his wife planted a church just a couple miles down the road from where I am. And it is vibrant and alive. And, you know, it's, it's not easy to speak to leaders because leaders and communicators don't listen to you. They listen at you. And, and they, they know just as much as you know. And yet I think we're all going to find Brian is, is riveting. He's a captivating speaker. And I can't wait to do this with you and hear from you. Yeah. And let me tell you a quick story. There was a, we had a midweek worship service a while back for young adults, and then everybody started coming, all ages. And there was uh, this high school girl, and there was a group of high schoolers that came, um, and she was worshiping, and she was going hard for it. And then there's this guy in the back, kind of off to the side, but in the back. And all of a sudden, this guy starts taking pictures of this high school girl. And my assistant at the time comes walking over to me, kind of terrified. Um, I'm on the side in it. You know, sometimes you just don't pay attention. You need all the people that actually do the work because we're just the talking heads. And so I'm just the talking head singing as she comes over and goes, there's this guy that's taking pictures of high school girl. And I was like, where? And I looked over, and it was Chris taking a picture of his daughter. And so I was like, it's okay. He's not that guy. <laughs> we're okay. And I, but the part about Chris that I've loved, um, and then we saw, I, I was reminded, even as we drove up, um, He's so raw and honest and, uh, and invites you to be the same. And you can just say what you need to say. I've gone to him to count for counsel a few times, and I've known of him over the years, but really gotten to know him over the last three or four. And he's got a shepherd's heart, and he knows how to speak into a shepherd's heart. And when we heard, hey, our job, I mean, what are we going to teach that you haven't heard? Um, our job is to remind, really is to remind, and to shepherd you. Like, take off the shepherd hat and just be and let us do it but Chris is so good at that and it's just been such a joy we're two miles away um, we fight all the time we're in competition um, we I even shaved my head so I could be like him I'm on a diet so this is like the before and after pictures so, <laughs> so I'm really working toward it but guys I know you're going to be blessed each evening when we come together he's going to shepherd and love you well and he's available. He wants to be available for you all this week. So a joy to be up here with you guys. Uh, but Chris Jackson, as he teaches, thanks, guys. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, my, my youngest daughter, um, after graduating high school and going off to college, she joined Brian's church for a season of her life before she uh, moved out to Riverside, California. But, um, yeah, I, I'm really 
happy to be here. I, I have a really dumb question, though, because I've never been here. Are, are sequoias the same thing as redwoods? Oh, they're not. Okay. <laughs> but there are redwood trees on the way up here, yes? No? Some saying yes, some saying no. They look massive to me, but it is, it is spectacular up here. So, yeah, Brian said it very well. Um, when a pastor talks to pastors, we, we talk as friends and we talk as peers. Um, I get to be part of a, a college in Kenya uh, teaching pastors, and every time I teach them, one of the first things I say to them is, I want you to know that I know how smart you are. Um, I, I, can, I speak English, and I can say, hi, how are you in French, but this college is in English, and so these speakers speak a, a minimum of three languages to attend. They speak their mother tongue, they speak Swahili, and they speak English, and so I just want to say that. I, I realize that, that when we look at scriptures, you will no doubt have insights and observations that I need to glean from and learn from. And I've been praying for you, but I've also been praying for myself because I'm here for the exact same things that you're here for, which is to connect with God, to touch that thin space, the holy ground, to be impacted and changed. And, and listen, I honor you. I honor you for who you are. I honor you for what you represent and what you're doing. Uh, I think it was Emerson that said, every great institution is the lengthened shadow of a single person. And great leadership happens when we leaders start to embody the vision that we're presenting. And, and so I just, I just admire you and I honor you tonight for embodying faith and love and hope and, and hanging in there and staying faithful. And um, it's good. And it matters, and I'm just praying so much that this is a, a week of refreshing and strength. And um, I actually would like to, to pray one more super quick prayer. We've done a lot of praying tonight, but this is 9-11. And so I just want to pray for our country, and I'll pray very quickly. But, but uh, my wife and I were in New York uh, recently. We took our youngest daughter, who just turned 21, to see a Broadway show. I have a brother who was a big Broadway star, and he's a Hollywood actor, and but we'd never taken our daughter to New York. And so we took her and we went to the 9-11 memorial. Have any of you seen, seen that? There's a tree next to the memorial that they call the survivor tree. It's, it's a tree that survived the attacks at 9-11. And they had to transplant it and do all this urgent stuff to keep it alive. But it made it. And it's really interesting because the tree is held together by cables. And there's this little placard that tells the story. And my wife and I took pictures by the tree because that's kind of where we are in our life right now. We feel like we're being held together by something outside of us. And, and, but we're here. And we've made it. And it was a powerful moment. And 9-11, of course, just marked our country so deeply. So let me just pray very simply. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you let your kingdom and your will and your agenda and your power and your life and your plan be done in our country. Lord, we are wrung out. We are wiped out. We are facing an upcoming election, which will be fun. We are facing uh, so much in our world, and we need you. And so as people that you have called into service, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to invade our world touch our country, Lord, all of our servicemen and servicewomen and all of the people who are, are giving their lives in um, military service, uh, strengthen them, protect them, guard them, cover them, be with them. Bless our nation tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, I know that you've, you've come a long ways. I'm not going to talk for a super long time tonight, but um, it, it's a pretty amazing thing to be called into service, isn't it? It's pretty amazing to be called to minister. Um, that there's a verse in Jeremiah 15 where God is speaking, and he says, if you turn, I will restore you, and before me you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will be my spokesperson. And that's what our calling is. Our calling is to stand before God, which is pretty amazing. And then, and then to stand before God so long that we're able to look at the worthless things in life and extract something precious out of it. It's a beautiful calling that we've been called into. And whether you're youth pastors, senior pastors, pastors' wives, uh, pastors' husbands, whatever your role might be um, in this setting, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. It, it's not an easy thing to stand sometimes. It, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the mood-altering book of Ecclesiastes, that 30 times... The author of the book of Ecclesiastes says, I looked under the sun. You know, when you read that book, you hear that phrase over and over. I looked under the sun, under the sun. I saw this person and that group and this system and that oppression and that hope. 30 times, he says, I looked under the sun. And then 35 times in those 12 chapters, he concludes that life is meaningless. It's worthless. It's, a, it's vanity. And I think if a person limits their view to what's under the sun, the only conclusion is hopeless. And our job is that we stand in between two worlds. And we stand in between the world under the sun and the reality above the sun, and we facilitate meetings. It's an incredible calling to be in that liminal space and try and connect two worlds, but it's hard. It's not easy to be a, a connector of, of two sometimes contradictory realities. I mean, uh, just, let's just think back to the good old days of COVID. And how, do you, how did you connect people back then? Uh, I, I remember uh, in COVID moments, there, there were days in the same day, I would get an email from someone saying, I will not come back to church if I have to wear a mask. And the exact same day, another person would say, I can't come back unless everybody's wearing a mask. So, so how do you win? <laughs> I remember the late Tim Keller. I loved Tim Keller. I still love Tim Keller. But he said during COVID, he said, no pastor feels like they're doing a good job. He said they don't feel like they're doing a good job because they're not doing a good job. They're not doing a good job because they can't do a good job. How do you do a good job when such conflicting perspectives if Donald Trump is the salvation of the country or Donald Trump is the devil. And those same groups and opinions are in your church. So, so what you and I do, I, I'm a senior pastor of, of a church. I, I've, I've been in ministry a, a long time. I've been a, a lead pastor for about 16 years. What we do every week, every day, is not easy. And, and, and that doesn't even factor in spiritual warfare. But just the fact that we're also people, we're also humans, and we stand in this place while we go through our own stuff. In fact, I, I would love if you don't mind, I'd love to show you a picture of my family, and then I'll just give you a little glimpse into some things that we've walked through. But um, here's a picture of 
of my wife and two daughters. My wife's on the right, that's Jessica. We've been married 28 years, and the girl in the middle is Madeline. She was in Brian's church. Madeline's a senior at uh, Cal Baptist in Riverside, and she's a social work student and just amazing young woman, uh, about to get engaged. So I'm kind of glad we have no reception because Drew is supposed to call me <laughs> any moment to have the talk. So I'm dodging Drew, but um, <laughs> I, I love Drew, but they're, they're probably mission field bound. They're, they're pretty special. The, the girl on the left is Amber. Um, Amber's my oldest, and um, Amber is an amazing person, but she, she's also battling a couple of very severe addictions that have turned our world upside down and have just brought measures of pain and confusion that we never even knew existed. And uh, we're parenting them and pastoring a church and teaching and all kinds of stuff while we are also human and while we're going through our stuff. And so our, our, our church is amazing. I mean, as leaders, we, we're so loved, but, but we're also human and people know our stuff and they know our issues. And I'll show you one other picture. Um, the next one, this, is, this was our first daughter. So we've had three daughters. This is Alexis. And so Jessica and I, we've had Alexis Grace, Amber Hope, and Madeline Joy. And we weren't trying to be prophetic with their names, but it turns out that Grace and Hope and Joy could not have been more prophetic for our lives. But um, uh, Alexis was born almost one year to the day after we were married, and she lived until she was three and a half. She had major health problems, and I memorized Every verse in the Bible on divine healing, prayed healing scriptures over her little body, probably at least an hour a day, had a gigantic crisis when she died, and, um, she, but she was ill her whole life. So we started out in crisis while pastoring and, and then went through all the regular stuff of pastoring. And I'm, I'm 51 and we're in crisis again pastoring and somehow we still have to lead. Somehow we still have to step up. We still have to stand. It's not easy to do that. And so it's not a token thing when I say to you, I honor you. And as I prayed for you, the, the simple word that I felt from the Lord was, thank you. Uh, the church is built on people who stand. When Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Yes, he was talking about the revelation that Peter had of Jesus, but he was also talking about Peter. God needs some people that he can hang the weight of leadership on. It's not an easy weight to carry. It's not an easy place to stand. In fact, let, let me, um, I, I have a picture of what I often think that ministry feels like. I, I've just got one more picture to show you tonight. <laughs> D does that seem accurate to you? I just love the intensity. I always show this in Kenya with all the pastors in Kenya because we, we actually have a Maasai uh, warrior who has killed a lion. He's actually killed two lions, and he's a pastor, and he's in this Kenya College of Ministry. But I love, that's not going to be a draw. <laughs> There's only going to be one person that walks away from that conflict, but that's what ministry feels like. And in fact, in the Old Testament, you know this shepherds fought lions. That was one of the roles of a shepherd. It's, it was 
what we know of King David, but there are Old Testament passages of shepherds coming out together to face lions. And so I want to just talk for a few minutes tonight from 2 Kings 17. You can go there with me, 2 Kings 17, and let's just, just do a few minutes talking about standing in lion country. In 2 Kings 17, we get introduced to the history of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria. Everybody, of course, is more familiar with the fall of Judah, with the Babylonian exile, with Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of that. But we all know, of course, that before the southern kingdom fell, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. The northern kingdom went into exile because, as was always the case with Israel and with humans, uh, people insisted on going their own way. You know, until you have a child who struggles in the teen years or... Are any of you parenting adult children, by the way? Parenting adult children is no joke. But until you have, like, a struggling issue, it's hard to fully understand God because God in the Old Testament woos and draws and pleads and kisses and promises and threatens and lectures and rants and rages. And it's like he, he just goes through the whole spectrum of emotion. And he's doing that, pleading with his people, choose life. And of course, we know that Israel's history, and again, humanity's history, was not choosing life. But in this moment in their history, they insisted on going their own way. It gets to the point where there's actually child sacrifice as worship to foreign gods on the soil of the promised land. There came a point where God had to say, okay, if you insist, then I'll let the inbuilt consequences of that path come upon you, which, of course, that's the nature of, of biblical judgment. So when this happens... The king of Assyria engages in a common form of subjugation. At that time, these, some of these kings, they would conquer a, a nation and then deport uh, citizens and then transplant new citizens. And, and so they would uh, control the power structure. It's easier to control foreigners that don't know their way around and, and just kind of keep all the nationalism watered down. So... Um, I know we all know that, but that's the backdrop for 2 Kings 17, verse 24. It'll be up on the screen too, but it says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. Now, now, as we keep reading, we'll catch the fact that God didn't actually send these lions. This, this isn't the Bible saying God sent lions to kill the people who were worshiping badly. Jesus does not massacre people when they don't know how to worship him properly. What's happening is the pagan... Um, the Assyrian people are concluding that this ravaging swarm of lions must be the judgment of God. Uh, with the, the swell of population, the deportation, the, uh, the new people, lions had, had arisen up. It says here, it was reported to the king of Assyria. 
The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. So this was their conclusion. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests. And isn't that an Old Testament version of our New Testament pastoral ministry? Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So how would you like that ministry assignment? And you might feel like you already have it. Hey, we have an incredible assignment for you. Huge need. We're, we're going to send you. We're going to support you. The king's actually for this. Huge need. Incredible opportunity. We're going to find it. There's just one problem. It's lion country. Great opportunity, but there's marauding lions swarming through the city. Have you ever been in a setting? Or how about just recently, because we've all been in a setting. But have you ever been in a setting where the need was so crushing that you thought to yourself, what in the world would I do if God called me here? It's an overwhelming feeling. Um, we've all experienced that. I have had a few that really marked me. Our church supports a ministry in Cambodia called AIM, Agape International Missions. Their goal is to eradicate the world of sex trafficking. It's actually pretty cool. If, if we were to pool all of the ministries that all of our ministries support, this little room right here would have a ripple effect around the world. It's pretty awesome. But um, I visited Cambodia because we've given a bunch of money to this organization, and I wanted to see what they were doing. It's, it's crazy. They've literally changed the international rankings of Cambodia to a safer rating. They, have, they are transforming the country. It's, it's phenomenal. But I remember we got to, to Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia, and this friend and I, from the airport to the hotel to the ministry was so overwhelming. I remember in the moment just the massive poverty, and I've done a lot of traveling, so I've seen poverty, massive poverty, endless unemployment, just uh, men and women, but men specifically just lining the streets with nothing to do. Just, it was so oppressive. The, the place was so oppressive, I literally felt myself losing courage and hope and faith before we got to the ministry. And I remember thinking, out, thinking to myself, God, if you sent me here, what in the world would I do? When we went to New York with Maddie, we got there on a Saturday night and went to Times Square. And I, I love New York. And, but we, we got there, and it was so crowded. And for some reason, this is just a couple months ago, for some reason, it felt like Old Town Las Vegas, like that kind of a vibe, wall-to-wall -wall people, tens of thousands. And the, the vibe, the atmosphere, the attitude... I literally was walking through thinking of Tim Keller, who had his church there, and then thinking, God, if you sent me here, what would I do? And just what do you do with the need? And um, the, the, the next morning after being in Times Square, I, I, I decided to get up early, and I went to Times Square Church. Have any of you been to Times Square Church? Or you remember the, the cross and the switchblade? Remember that story with Nikki Cruz and David Wilkerson? Well, Times Square Church 
was started by David Wilkerson in Times Square. And I remember going from despair on Saturday night, and I walked into the church on Sunday morning, and as soon as I walked in the door, there's an usher with his arms out like this. And he goes, welcome home. And you felt God's presence. And the way people were worshiping, I literally felt like I've stepped into a, a whole new reality. And I sat there just thinking, okay, if God sent me to New York, I, I know what I would do. I would pick a spot and worship and serve and give and pray and try and show up. And when I was in Cambodia, I, I, I finished this drive, got to the point of like, God, how in the world would I make a difference? Our car pulled up to the restoration house. This particular ministry has a SWAT team that does raids on the brothels, social workers that sweep the girls out, counselors that bring therapy, attorneys that prosecute. It's, it's phenomenal. But we went to the restoration house. We drove onto the property, and I felt like I was in a sanctuary. I felt like heaven was opened, and I, I literally felt the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, okay, this is what I would do. If you called me to Cambodia, I would pick a spot, and I would start worshiping and praying and showing up and serving people and then seeing what God would do. Um, in this text and in this passage, the king says, take a priest and send them there to teach the people what the God of the land requires. So verse 28 says, so one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Worship is spiritual warfare. Worship changes atmospheres. Worship creates thin spaces. And to show up in our brokenness, even if we're being held together by cables because we don't know how to stand on our own, and to continue in that place matters. And it changes atmospheres. Let me give you one New Testament passage, and then I'll, I'll land the plane for tonight. Um, you, you remember the, the backstory to Paul's letter to Titus? You can go to Titus chapter 1 for just a second. Titus had a New Testament version of the, the Samaria Bethel story. Um, Paul and Titus are evangelizing on a missionary journey. Revival breaks out on Crete. Titus is young and eager, and somehow he's tasked with staying behind to pastor this move of God on Crete. He's pastoring the fledgling church. Paul has to move on. And Paul writes him a letter. And, and, and it's an amazing letter. It's very sweet. And as is always the case with Paul, he starts out with an incredible opening of you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and all of this wonderful stuff. And then in verse 4, he says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the NIV. and In the King James Version, it says, For this cause I left you in Crete, that you might set in order things that are lacking. For this cause, so I left you in Crete to ordain elders, 
Now, a lot of scholars think that when Paul was writing Timothy or Titus, that he was responding to a former letter from Titus. Because if, if, if we read deeper into the passage, Paul tells Titus, I want you to ordain elders. Verses 6 through 9, he gives the description of elders. And then in verse 10, he gives the pool of prospects for elder candidates. In verse 10, he describes the Cretans this way. He says, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So the religious people are the worst. Paul says they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then he says, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. When we read this whole passage, scholars conclude that Titus must have written Paul a letter. And it probably went something like, dear Paul, why have you left me here? Ordain elders in this place? There's not a candidate for an elder anywhere in view. The, the, the glamour has faded. Why couldn't you have sent me to Jerusalem where the apostles are or, or sent me somewhere where the glory is, is flowing? Um, why in the world have you left me here? Ordain elders with this bunch? And so Paul responds to the letter. And he says to Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. And, and it's very fascinating and very important to notice that Paul does not give Titus a return home ticket. Paul doesn't write a syrupy little, meek little comforting letter. He says to Titus, for this cause... I left you in Crete. And then Paul makes one of the greatest faith-filled affirmations in all of Scripture. He says, I have left you there to ordain elders in every city. I know that there are no elder candidates on this island. I know that they're liars and they're lazy and, and that this is the worst place to look for elders. But if you will stay faithful... If you will stay in your spot, if you'll preach among lions, if you'll keep showing up, if you'll keep serving when it hurts, if you won't back off of your faith, there will be so many elders on Crete that the church will use this book for the qualifications of elders. We, we read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to figure out who's qualified to serve on an elder board. If you will not quit, if you will stand... If you will be faithful, which you are, God will do incredible things. It's kind of fascinating in the Bible. I know lions are super scary. Uh, but have you noticed that lions, they don't actually do that well in the scripture. For as fierce as they are, Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, dives into a pit on a snowy day to face a lion, and he comes out wearing a lion skin robe. Daniel's thrown into a lion's pit. The lions can't even open their mouths. 
Satan's called this roaring lion looking for people to devour, and, and, and he does. And I've experienced it, and you've experienced it, and yet Calvary defeated him. The, the, the reason that Benaiah could come out of the pit alive, the reason Daniel could survive, the reason we can preach among lions is because Jesus went there first. Jesus went into the pit first. So, so actually, um, we're, we're not actually going to lion country. We're going to country where the spirit has gone before us. We're, we're actually not pioneers. We're settlers. The Holy Spirit is the pioneer. The Holy Spirit goes first. When, when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he, he said to Mary, or the angel said, tell them, I've gone before you the way I told you. Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has made a way, and he will sustain us and uphold us. And when it is all said and done, there will be elders on Crete. There will be worshipers in Samaria. In fact, listen to one more verse in Isaiah 19, 19, it says, In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of Egypt. Verse 23, In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria, and they will worship God together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Your spot matters. Your stand is bearing fruit. It will not prove vain. I don't know how long you'll have to stand there. God's allowed to move us. You might not be in your assignment forever. Now, if you move on, there will be lions waiting for you wherever you go. So we have to learn to face them regardless. But I just want to end our time having you stand. And can we go back to the anthemy, faithy, whatever's on your mind? So we're just about finished. But when we end talks in church, we all know that you, you stand and you sing. When I was growing up in church, we went to the altar. So today, the stand and sing is our modern day come to the altar. But rather than just standing the way we always do, would you mind just standing prophetically? And even just exactly where you are, can you just imagine it as your spot? And, and I love what Jason said at the beginning. You might be having a blast. Ministry can be so exhilarating. Or, or you may be staring down a lion tonight. But if you would just stand and in this spot... Let's just worship for two, three minutes, and then we'll go crash. But the Lord is for you and honors you and thanks you.